Hey, Max, you know how sometimes you'll see like a triad relationship that got together for all the wrong reasons and all you can think is that's not going to end well. Sure. Yeah. Well, it may surprise you to know that that's basically the central plot of my book. Is that horror? I mean, sometimes it's a train wreck. Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And just to be clear, that was a joke. We have nothing against triad relationships or poly relationships. Just like monogamous relationships, they can be unhealthy, but they can also be beautiful and wonderful at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, not at the same time. You know what I mean. I'm not thinking clearly. I'm tired. Yeah. I mean, I think what you were referencing is that, you know, sometimes instead of a couple actually falling in love with another person, they just want to try adding some spice into their sex life and then they take it too far. Yep. Anyway, that doesn't sound like horror, but well, actually, it certainly can be. It's not like the actual central plot line. I don't know. I just wanted to come up with an opening for the episode. Mm -hmm. I like all your openings. Anyway, before we get to my book, (laughs) and on that note, what am I talking about today? I'm talking about a movie. Surprise, surprise. I'm talking about, I think, the earliest movie I've ever done. It is exciting. I'm talking about my first actual legitimate B movie, and I'll explain what that means in, in a bit, but it is called Cat People. Ew! Oh my god, I love cats. It is, well, this is not about people who sit around watching videos of cats fumbling around in pajamas or anything. This is... Wait, I'm sorry. You've seen a video of a cat fumbling around in pajamas and you have not told me? (laughs) I really only send you puppy videos. I know. And goat videos. And goat videos. We do send those. If y'all... If y'all haven't experienced the magic of baby goats, you really should just Google baby goat videos. Anyway. So this movie was made in 1942. What an interesting time for the <laughs> for the world that was. <laughs> for oh con- boy. For context, if people didn't know, 1942 was kind of the uh, Second World War sort of winding down, but still going pretty strong. Uh, D-Day was 1944. So for reference, we're still like, you know, bad things are still happening, but we're making movies about cat people. I mean... Sometimes you just need art to help you get through the tough times. And then sometimes you cut all the funding for art programs in schools and just see what happens. Yeah. Well. Okay. So. Anyway, let's get on to this. Too real and not actually funny. My bad. All right. So this movie was directed by Jacques Tournier. This was produced for RKO by Val Luton. I'm going to get to that in a moment because people may be thinking, that sounds really familiar. And I'll explain a little bit about it in a bit. I think I speak for all of us when I say that doesn't sound familiar. Well, RKO is actually referenced multiple times in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um. Which I know you've seen. Okay, yes, I've seen it. Much like Silence of the Lambs. I was in my first relationship. My boyfriend at the time was sitting on my lap. I had other things on my mind. I mean, is there ever a time somebody isn't sitting on your lap? I feel like it's like every single time we talk about movies. But I'm very small, so it's actually not that often. I would literally smash you. It's okay. What a glorious way to die. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, so this movie... Is a, like I said before, is a true B-movie. What does that mean? I've referenced B-movies before because some people think that B-movies are literally just low-budget movies. That is not what a B-movie is. Although, I'll give this caveat. If you want it, it's kind of, the term now is a lot more broadly used. If you want to use the term to reference a low-budget movie, you can do that because language is a living thing and definitions do change. 
But for people that are interested in what a B-movie originally meant or what the normal um, meaning was, a B-movie is actually a low-budget commercial motion picture, not an art house film, not an independent film, not just a random super low-budget movie. Essentially what it was is you would have these studios that would have their super like blockbusters and then they would have they had like a second studio that was making much more lower budget films but still under their umbrella and those movies would be less publicized and usually end up as the bottom half of a double feature because double features were a thing back then so kind of like how publishing houses will have like smaller imprints yes and music the music Um, industry does the same thing too they have b-sides for music which now doesn't really happen because it's all digital but before it was like you could turn i don't even know to be honest records over i think it was either tapes or records it's like you turn them over and they play like a different thing i think both okay i don't to be honest records are before my time so i don't know but and to be honest because the cassette tapes that i would listen to were not like that either i was cds were basically the thing when i was younger like, I remember making mixtapes, but I don't remember buying cassette tapes, if that makes sense. No, the only cassette tape that I ever owned was the Lion King soundtrack when I was, like, six. I got it for Christmas. Yeah. So, that is, that's, so that's what a B-movie is. Early B-movies were usually, like, genre movies. The biggest ones originally were westerns, actually. They were a big staple. And then in the early 1950s, Sci-fi and horror became the most popular B-movies. They are also usually shorter than the regular movies. They run generally less than 70 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Does, like, film noir fall under that? So, film noir... This is not in my notes. You're You're just getting my trivia thing. Yes and no. Film noir did end up being made by these B-movie studios as kind of part of it towards the end of B-movies being a thing. Okay. So uh, basically what happened is B-movies died out when television started to kind of come into the picture in the late 50s because the studios that were making B-movie productions shifted to making television productions. And in a similar fashion, film noir was kind of part of that. And so you could categorize it as like the B-movie genre, because I do think that it was a lot of those early film noir movies were made by the same studios. I think as B-movies were kind of dying out, they kind of shifted and and branched off into different things. Well, the reason I asked that, gentle listener, is my coworker, Denise, actually just launched her own podcast where she talks about noir films. It's called Infinite Noir. And I don't know that it's on all platforms yet. I haven't seen it yet on Apple Podcasts, but I know at the very least it's on Spotify. And if you enjoy me being sassy and mouthy, I am the guest speaker on the first episode. And as you all know, I don't like movies, so it gets interesting. (laughs) Anyway, carry on. Yeah. I'm no film noir expert, but I do know that 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 B-movies and film noir had a very big, were around at the same time and are very closely related like that. So, yes. They were cousins, but not sisters. Sure. Anyways, that being said, RKO Pictures, which, like I said, is referenced in, in Rocky Horror, was one of the big five Hollywood studios at the time during what's usually referred to as Hollywood's golden age. That is the period of 1913 to 1969. But more than any of the other big five studios, RKO relied on B-movies to fill its production schedule and was most known for B-movies. So, that being said, Val Luton, who was an RKO producer, specialized in B-horror movies and focused on moody atmospheric work. Cat People was his first film with RKO. I just get really excited every time you say Cat People. I'm sorry. I love... Okay, gentle listener, I love cats... So much. I just really like cats, okay? Yes, yes, you do. I am that person who watches cat videos, and when they're so cute, I start crying. Because they're just too cute. <laughs> well, this movie, I don't, we'll see what you think of it. I mean, it has to do with cats, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it does. But anyways, also, if you're wondering what, okay. So, of course, this is 1942. This movie's in black and white. 
that should be apparent. But if you do want to stream this, you can find it on Shudder. You can also find its sequel, Curse of the Cat People, on Shudder. Curse of the Cat People came out in 1944. But interestingly enough, if you like cat people, Curse of the Cat People is only actually tangentially related to the story of the first movie. So that's something. Tell me about the cat people. Okay, let's let's get into the movie. I want to know. All right. So the movie opens up kind of in um, an obnoxious way with a basically like a fake quote by one of the characters in the film. But the quote is, even as fog continues to lie in the valleys, so does ancient sin cling to low places, the depressions in the world consciousness. And it's attributed to a book that doesn't exist called The Anatomy of Atavism by Dr. Lewis Judd. He is a character in the film. He is a psychiatrist, but whatever. Atavism, for people who may be curious. So what atavism actually means is it's a tendency to revert to something ancient or ancestral. But in biology, atavism refers to a modification of a biological structure whereby ancestral genetic traits reappear after having been lost through evolutionary change in previous generations. This feels very The Resurrectionist. Yeah. Quotes by a fake scientist, his whole theory that like physical mutations were um like genetic history reemerging. Yeah, it to be honest doesn't 100% it's not really that relevant to the film. It kind of is, but not really. I'm wondering if I should even just give like a summary and then talk about it. But I'll just talk about what happens. I'm going to try to get through this pretty quickly. The film, so it is atmospheric. It is kind of what I expected for a film from the 40s, like a horror film. It is definitely more atmosphere and and psychology because special effects were just like not really a thing back then. So it wasn't about gore and jump scares and things like that. It was much more just kind of like a slow build. And the slow build is done pretty well in this movie. The climax is like real medium. But anyways, let's just just continue. So. Then we're at a zoo, and we see a panther in a cage. We meet the main character. Her name, her character's name is Irina Dubrovna. She's played by Simone Simon. That is her real name. She is a French actress. It is her real name. I looked it up. She, she's a French actress. She plays... So her character, um, Irina, or Irena, is supposed to be Serbian in the movie. Her accent is just French, though. But I guess they were like in the 40s. They're like, whatever. She's going to sound foreign. Throw it in there. She's Serbian. So that that's that. Oh, boy. So she's sitting there and she's watching this panther. She goes to this zoo like an uncomfortable amount of times in this movie to watch the panthers. And the like guy who works at the zoo is always just like, oh, hey, what's up, girl? He's not like, you come here an uncomfortable amount of times. But, you know, whatever. Everyone was friendly in the 40s. To, the, to certain people. Anyways. So then... She basically, so she's drawing a sketch and she doesn't like it. So she crumples it up and she tries to throw it in the trash can, but she misses because she's a girl. And so this guy picks it up and points to basically this like no littering sign kind of thing. And he puts it in the trash can and then he goes to talk to her. Because he's a man. Right. So he goes to talk to her and she's finishing another sketch. She doesn't like that one either. So she crumples it up and she's going to throw it, but he takes it from her and he throws it and he gets it in the trash can because he's a man and he can do those things. So her delicate lady wrists just can't handle it. Yes. But she's obviously so impressed by him. He is. He's also like handsome. He I mean, he's handsome in that like generic 1940s leading man kind of way. Which is very handsome, to be clear. Yeah, no, he is handsome. I didn't look up to see what else he's done. He oh, he is like the secondary character. So I'll just say his character's name is Oliver Reed, but he's played by Kent Smith. I didn't look up Kent Smith. I don't know what else he's been in. Probably a lot of stuff. So. Anyways, Irena is so impressed that she invites Oliver to tea in her brownstone, which is fucking gigantic. She also tells him that she's like a fashion sketcher, which must pay really well because she owns this gigantic brownstone in New York, which seems insane. But, you know, it's whatever. One thing that Oliver notices is she has a statue of King John of Serbia. And so this makes her this prompts her to tell the story about her village. Which goes basically as follows. Back in the olden days, her village essentially turned away from Christianity and reverted back to the to being evil witches and bowing down to Satan, which doesn't make any sense because you can't revert to Satanism without Christianity being imposed on you. But whatever. This escalated so fast. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, so this is like, she's telling the story of like, this is like her village in like the old timey days, not like before she came to America. Oh, this is like back in the Okie Smokies. Yeah, like way before that. Like King John is like, like sword, like knight sword guy. Okay. Because the statue is him with like on a sword with a, or on a sword, on a horse with a sword that has like a big, like large cat impaled on it. <sighs> and basically she says that the village became evil and bowed to Satan. So the people like were able to like become evil and like turn into like big cats doesn't really explain that but anyways she said that basically king john killed all the people in the village but some people escaped the wicked ones and their legend haunts the village to this day and that's where she's from so that's some backstory and heavy-handed foreshadowing yes yes it is so then after telling the story it's kind of getting light so oliver says the quote quote boys who come to tea can't expect to stay for dinner and the only reason I mention that is because I really like old-timey talks. <laughs> like Things like that. It's just cute, you know? So he leaves, but they make plans to have dinner the next day. He shows up. I'm talking a lot about the first part of this movie. I'm going to skip a lot in the middle. He shows up and brings a present. What kind of present do you bring for basically a second date slash first dinner date? Well, he brings a kitten and a shoebox. That is a wholly appropriate gift. Um, Kittens are always welcome. Well, the kitten hates Irena and like starts freaking out about her. That's fine. My cat hates me. I still love her. (laughs) Well, Irena doesn't want the cat. So then they have to go to the pet store to exchange it and they end up exchanging it for a bird. Which, you know how I feel about birds as pets. Let's move on from that. So that night, obviously, they're still hanging out and Oliver had fallen asleep on his couch. He wakes up and Irena is like staring at him, which is creepy, but I do that too all the time. So not that creepy. And then he's like, this is day two. Let's keep this in mind. So then he's like, do you love me, Arena? Red flag. <laughs> red flag. Run away, girl. And she's like, yes. And then he's like, I love you too. You know what's funny? We've never even kissed. And it's like, that's what's funny about this situation? No. If this were a modern movie, they'd be posting fucking pictures on Facebook. Like... Found my soulmate, blah, blah, blah. That's the love of my life for the fourth time this year. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong with this marriage? Obviously nothing. Is divorce in our future? We don't know. But you'll find out in about five minutes. So then Irena is like, I've lived in dread of this moment. I never wanted to fall in love with you. And it's like, you mean like since yesterday you never wanted to fall in love with him? Oh my God, you're right. (laughs) Oh, it's kind of like how you just have to remind yourself that it's this is just right. So then it kind of comes out that <laughs> this is and this is like a problematic theme of this movie. It turns out that the curse of the village or the story of the village is that when women are like when their passions are aroused, then they turn into cats and kill the person that aroused them. So she's scared to fall in love because if she kisses him or gets aroused, then she thinks she's going to turn into a big cat and kill him, which is like not even remotely like metaphoric at all. I mean, it's literally like women need to be scared of their passions. To rant or not to rant? Hmm. Briefly, I hate this. Here's why I hate this. Not only is it saying that women should be scared of their passions, but it's also saying that women should not feel that sort of arousal and passion, which is encouraging men to want to have relations with these women, despite them not feeling any passion towards them, which is rape culture. Yeah. I hate it. I mean, yeah, it's a bad theme. It didn't even seem that subtle to me. So anyways, let's move on. Let's see where this goes. So... He basically tells her that the tales of her village are just fairy tales and that she's normal. Oh, keep in mind, still the second date. He like he has to remind her that she's just a normal girl who's going to marry him. They, you, y'all met yesterday. Yeah. So then the next scene, they're having like a wedding dinner because I guess they're married now. And he takes her to a Serbian restaurant, which is fine. And... This woman comes up, and they had remarked about how this woman looks like a cat. She's not, like, wearing, like, 
affects makeup. She just is like, you know, some women kind of have like almost these like feline qualities to them. She has a little bit of that. And the way they do her eye makeup makes it like very like, I don't even know how to describe it, but cat eye makeup. Yeah, but it's not really cat. I mean, it's not like a cat eye like people think now because people weren't doing that back then. I don't know. I think that I don't even think in the 40s that cat eye makeup was like a thing yet, right? Isn't it like a 50s thing? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't wear makeup, but whatever. So anyway, so people say that she looks like a cat. I didn't actually necessarily think so, but like whatever. She comes up and she says a word in Serbian to Arena, and Arena says that it means sister, and she gets all freaked out about it and keeps going on and on about this curse and how scared of it she is. So Oliver sends her to a therapist, Dr. Judd. We got to treat that hysteria. Yes. She basically reiterates with Dr. Judd that she's scared to get aroused. Dr. Judd makes this really inappropriate comment about like, well, why doesn't he like, what if I kissed you right now? And she's like, I don't want to kiss you. And so she leaves and she doesn't go back. Good. Well, she doesn't go back at that point. Oh. So then we meet. Well, we've met her before, but I didn't mention her. Oliver has a coworker, Alice. Alice is a super messy bitch who basically at the water cooler, which, by the way, they're smoking at the water cooler in the office. It is one of the weirdest things to see people smoking so much in these old timey movies. They smoke fucking everywhere. And like people will be like cleaning up a restaurant with like a cigarette hanging out of their mouth or like mopping a floor with a cigarette. It was just weird. But anyways, Alice basically confesses to Oliver at the water cooler that she is in love with him. Oh, she's that kind of messy bitch. Okay, I was about to say I love the messy ones, but not that that not that kind. No, no. And she's like, I shouldn't tell you this because of Arena. And Oliver is like, I don't even know what love is anymore. And then they end up going to dinner that night, and Arena sees them. And so, what's a girl to do? Because Arena is not having this. So the first thing she does is she calls Alice's work late at night when she knows only Alice is there, and then just basically doesn't say anything when Alice picks up the phone and Alice starts to get a little bit like nervous about it. And then she just slowly hangs up the phone. That's phase one. Phase two is Alice is walking home and Arena follows her and kind of like makes noise to make Alice think she's being followed, but doesn't actually like ever be like let herself be seen or whatever to make Alice think she's kind of going crazy. Then later on, Alice is in a swimming pool and She's kind of being terrorized by these, like, cat growling noises, and she's, like, really freaking out, and she thinks somebody's trying to kill her, and she's screaming and screaming, so the pool attendants, like, run in from the other room, and as soon as they run in, Irena was there was there to visit her. Irena turns on the lights and is like, girl, what's wrong? Why are you screaming? When it was, like, obviously her the whole time. Yeah. And so she's kind of making Alice go a little bit insane. I thought they were going to go more with that storyline, but they didn't. It was just, like, her, like, fucking with her a little bit. So then Alice goes to Dr. Judd and basically tells Dr. Judd that she thinks Arena is telling the truth about being a cat person because she's like, I think she's stalking me because she found out that I'm in love with Oliver. Dr. Judd's reaction is basically what you would expect. He's like, oh, how charming. This is so cute that these two women think this thing. <laughs> Doesn't obviously take it seriously at all and like completely blows her off because women can't have opinions. So <laughs> God. All right, so getting to the end. Oliver basically comes to tell Irina that he's fell in love with Alice and that he wants a divorce. Irina does not take it too well, but kind of is okay. She ends up kind of like, well, she has to sit down on the couch first. And then she talks about how it's okay, even though it's clearly not okay, because she is in love with loneliness. It gets real dark. They also talk about how they've been married and they still haven't even kissed. So I'm not sure that either of them should necessarily be shocked by this sentiment. But so then, okay, Oliver and Alice are then having coffee with Dr. Judd. And Dr. Judd suggests having Arena committed because she can't get rid of this uh, cat woman, cat person theory. And basically, they're like, you got two choices. You either have to commit Arena or you're going to have to just have your marriage annulled. And Alice is like, we have to take care of her. She's not well. And so they're going to commit her. So they basically like invite Arena over to sign commitment papers to commit her to like an institution. And she doesn't show up because why would she? She's not crazy. So then Oliver and Alice go back to the office. But somebody locks the office. And then there's a giant panther in the office that's stalking them. Bum, bum, bum. And Oliver is like, leave us in peace, Arena. 
And then he's like, in the name of God, leave us in peace. And then things go quiet and the leopard disappears. And they notice they get out of the office. They go to the front lobby and the revolving door is spinning. And they comment on how they can smell Arena's perfume. So then the sort of penultimate scene, Arena goes to see Dr. Judd who basically like grabs her and holds her tight and talks about like how soft he is and gets like real ethically sketchy. Well, not even sketchy, just like bad and kisses her. Oh boy. Which prompts Arena to turn into a panther and she kills him. Uh, Because of course, if you kiss a woman, whether or not she wants you to, she's going to get aroused. Yeah. So he kisses her. She turns into a panther. She kills him. So then the basically final part of the movie is Arena goes back to the zoo and she the the zoo leaves the key to the panther cage in the lock because that's definitely what zoos do. So she op- unlocks the cage and opens it up and lets the panther out and the panther promptly runs away and gets hit by a car and dies. What? <laughs> Oh my god! I didn't really get what this that was, but then, it, but she, when the panther runs out of the cage, it knocks the reina over, and the panther is dead. And then they also like cut to a picture of Arena, and Arena is now a panther, but also dead. And you know it's her because her coat, her like black fur coat that she wore through the whole movie, is on the panther corpse. I think she had been stabbed in the bout with Doctor Judd because they do mention about how his sword cane was broken in half, but they never show showed her like they never showed it in arena but they kind of allude to maybe the fact that like he had used a sword cane on her interesting yeah i didn't get it anyways so arena ends up dead and also the zoo panther ends up dead for some weird reason i guess because like in the end like she's watching this caged panther i get okay this would be this would be kind of part of my final thoughts i guess it the movie she watches this panther go back and forth in his cage the whole time. And I think she feels that same restraint because she's not allowed to embrace her passions or she's worried that she's going to become a panther. So I think the whole thing is she feels caged. Then after she is kissed by the doctor and kills him. And like, I think it's more of like her accepting who she is and wanting to be in like allowing herself to be free. So then she goes and frees the panther. But then the weird thing is that like immediately upon freeing the panther, it gets killed, gets run over by a car, which is kind of like, you should be yourself, be free, and then immediately, like, you'll get smashed by life, which is kind of true. Also, A, if you're a lady and you let yourself feel your passions, you're going to die. Like, it's just another caveat against women embracing their sexuality. I'm sorry. Yeah. I hate it. I mean, I think that that's kind of the general theme of this. All in all, the movie, it started off pretty good. I actually really liked the first half of the movie. I liked the... I liked the dialogue style. It was very 1940s. I liked the acting. It's exactly what you would expect from a movie from that time period. Problem is, like, the general theme was kind of bad. It sort of tapered off. The ending of it was not great. So, I don't know. I think if you're, like, a really big fan of these, like, black and white 40s-style B-movies, it's probably decent to see. But I've definitely seen better. And I don't necessarily... I don't know. I would say, like, from a B, from a historical B-movie perspective, it's probably, like, worth seeing. But I don't necessarily think I would classify it as, like, one of the more enjoyable experiences I've had. It's not the worst thing I've watched by a very long while. I mean, I don't really give things ratings, but I would definitely put it at a solid in the middle of things that I've seen. And I was I didn't regret watching it, but the, I mean, it was only 70 minutes, and the last 20 minutes were pretty draggy. I'll say that. Anyway, and not draggy, like... Boots the house down, draggy, like it dragged on. You just wanted to say boots the house down. No. Anyways, that's cat people. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches. Well, in case you didn't know, because I am always aware, the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic is coming up. So in honor of that, this week I am going to be talking to you about the 2020 nautical gothic sensation, The Deep by Amakatsu. Yay, Titanic horror. Also, omakatsu sounds like something you'd order at a Japanese restaurant. Like, I'll have the omakatsu, please. Even though alma is a very, very pretty Latin name, it means soul. Anyway, it was insanely popular when it came out with, like, tons of marketing. And so I'm actually really excited to talk about it. Quick rundown of the cover. It is simultaneously gorgeous and disappointing at the same time. 
and I will tell you why. Um, it's really beautifully done. It's the bow of a ship. A ghostly figure is in the water below it. The full moon is shining in the sky. It's all done by someone named Tal Goretsky. I have a few issues with it. First of all, the book itself has this like slow, creeping horror vibe, and I feel like this cover screams peril at sea. Also, although this book takes place on both the Titanic and her sister ship, the Britannic, we know that the cover of the book is the Titanic because it's painted black and the Britannic was painted white when she was being used as a hospital ship. Therefore, the cover is inaccurate because it features a full moon when the Titanic sank on the night of a new moon, which is considered one of the reasons why the iceberg was not seen until it was too late. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Nope, none of that matters. People don't know that. I know it. Also, what if this isn't the night that the Titanic sank? The Titanic sank on its maiden voyage, which was five nights long. There wouldn't have been a full moon. You think that maybe this was written for people that don't know that much about the Titanic? Probably. (laughs) So before we dive in, just a note for gentle listeners and you as well, Peaches, in case you have forgotten, I am obsessed with the Titanic, like deeply obsessed, like between second and like the end of fourth grade, I refused to read anything that wasn't about the Titanic. So there is a chance that I might ramble some here and there, and you're just going to have to cut me off. So let's bring it back around to the blurb. It's a long blurb, so I have cut out some parts for what I'm reading because I really don't want people to have to listen to me read the blurb out loud for two full minutes. Someone or something must be haunting the ship. Between mysterious disappearances and sudden deaths, the guests of the Titanic have found themselves suspended in an eerie, unsettling twilight zone from the moment they set sail. Several of them are convinced that something sinister, almost otherworldly, is afoot. But before they can locate the source of the danger, as the world knows, disaster strikes. Years later, Annie, having survived that fateful night, has attempted to put her life back together. Working as a nurse on the sixth voyage of the Titanic sister ship, the Britannic, newly refitted as a hospital ship, she happens upon an unconscious Mark, now a soldier fighting in World War I. At first, Annie is thrilled and relieved to learn that he too survived the sinking, but soon Mark's presence awakens deep-buried feelings and secrets, forcing her to reckon with the demons of her past, as they both discover that the terror may not yet be over. Okay. Bum, bum, bum. Ship terror. Which I kind of dig. It was fun. I liked this book a lot. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get to the plot. I'm not going to give away the ending because it is kind of like a twist ending. So it's like the whole point. Also, I don't really like giving away the endings of books that are so recent. And this literally came out a year ago. So, Mm -hmm. okay. That said, I am going to talk about plot points, so there are spoilers ahead. Spoilers, dead ahead. (laughs) Like iceberg, dead ahead. Anyway, so our story centers around a woman named Annie. At the very opening of the story, she's residing in an asylum, but then she receives a letter from her friend, Violet Jessup, asking her to come and be a nurse on the Britannic. And so the doctor at the asylum signs off her release and sends her on her merry way. Wait, so... She's in like a, she's in an asylum, like as a patient or as a nurse? As a patient, but it's kind of weirdly described. Like she basically just, she acknowledges that she doesn't need to be there. She's just kind of like staying there. Okay. Because I was going to say, that seems weird to be like, yeah, you know how I'm in this mental institution? My friend wants me to be a nurse. I think I'm going to go do that instead. And the doctor's like, all right, no problem. The doctor actually makes her go. She doesn't want to. But she received the letter from Violet and they read the mail of the people staying there. And the doctor's like, you really don't need to be here. I'm signing off on this. Go. Okay. Go forth and nurse. Fun side note, Violet Jessup, as well as many of the characters that we encounter, was actually a real person. Just like in the book, she was a stewardess on the Titanic and she was a nurse on the Britannic and she survived both sinkings. Oh, the Britannic sank too? Yes, it hit a mine. God, they could just not get it right, huh? Although mines are probably a little bit more difficult to avoid than giant glaciers. Icebergs. Yeah. Yeah. The Britannic is actually um, close enough to the surface that experienced divers can dive down. 
and see it. The Titanic. Oh, like it didn't sink in a huge, like the depth that it sunk in? No. Well, the Britannic sank in some like channel near Greece. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's diveable. The Titanic is two miles under the ocean. So obviously that's not happening. Anyway, now I just wanted to give you some context for how the story opens. The book itself flips back and forth between Annie's time on the Titanic and her time on the Britannic. But I'm going to talk about just the Titanic part first and then the Britannic part second. Just because I feel like when you're listening to a podcast, flipping back and forth is not as easy to follow. So it's Annie's first day. She's on the Titanic. She's waiting for her passengers. She's a first class stewardess and she meets the Fletchers. We've got Mark. We've got Caroline, and we have their daughter, Ondine. <laughs> O-N-D-I-N-E. Yeah, I'm familiar with it, to be honest. Um, I know she doesn't listen to this podcast, and I, <laughs> so, and, and this isn't even a bad thing. My brother's boss's daughter is named Ondine. That's an interesting choice. See, my connection with this name, I used to have a friend, and she was like... As her side hustles, she did, like, mermaid gigs, like, with the tail Mm -hmm. and everything. And her mermaid name was Ondine. But then she decided that making HIV and AIDS jokes were funny and we're not friends anymore. God, that's so un-mermaid-like. Because if you make HIV and AIDS jokes, you are trash. Full stop. Anyway, moving on. So, they are who the story primarily circles around. Technically, the Fletchers are not a part of the group of cabins that Annie is assigned to, but she connects so well with Ondine that Caroline is like, I need you to help me take care of this baby because I am a wealthy woman and shouldn't have to. We also meet W.T. Stead, who was a newspaper editor. He was a real person who died on the Titanic. Fun fact, he actually wrote two fictional pieces before sailing. One was about two steamers that collided in the Atlantic with a great loss of life due to a lack of lifeboats. And for anyone who's unaware, there was a severe lack of lifeboats on the Titanic. And another is about a ship that was crossing the Atlantic and picked up survivors from another ship that had sunk due to hitting an iceberg. Bum, bum, bum. It's just like Titanic uh, conspiracy theories. Pretty much. Well, there actually is a book called The Wreck of the Titan that came out in the late 1800s that is literally like... The biggest ship of its time, it was considered unsinkable. It hits an iceberg. There aren't enough lifeboats. A majority of the people die. But it was written like 20 years before. I actually have a copy. Anyway, moving on. All of this is happening in first class. But meanwhile, in third class, we have David and Leslie. They go by Di and Les. They are two boxers, two guys. I know Leslie is kind of a gender neutral name. Um, two guys. They're also very, very gay. Very gay. Like actually gay or like in your head gay? Oh, they bone. Oh, okay. They bone. And they actually get caught by a closeted lesbian and she lets it slide because she's family. (laughs) Um, Actually, you could argue that Les is bi because Les is also kind of a ladies man at the same time. But Di is like super into him, like super just gay. Gay, gay, gay. Gay for him. Nothing about their plot is actually scary at all, but I'm going to tell you basically the entirety of their (laughs) plot because it's two gay guys, and I love it. Anyway, the gothic horror of this book starts with Teddy, a boy who works for the Astors. Real people. They were the wealthiest family in America at the time. Anyway, he is out on the first-class promenade, and he hears a voice singing. And so he, like, runs over to the railing, and he's about to leap over into the ocean, and Di saves him. This, of course, coincides with the first-class passengers discussing the paranormal. And W.T. Stead, who was known for being really into, like, spiritualism and occultism, is like, hey, we should have a seance in my rooms. And spiritualism and occultism were really big in, like, late Victorian, early Edwardian England and America. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm aware of this because of you. You're welcome. (laughs) I really love this time period. Anyway, Caroline is one of the passengers planning to gather because she had joined this conversation while she was strolling the promenade, contemplating her resentment towards her child, her (laughs) resentment towards her husband's lingering feelings for a woman named Lillian, and her frustration that her doctor has switched her from a laudanum prescription to a cocaine prescription. And it just isn't the same. I mean, isn't laudanum a downer? 
Yes. So here we go. Here's my little like thing. Um, I don't remember if we've discussed this before because we've done some gothic horror, which often takes place in Victorian times. But laudanum is literally an opium tincture. Opium is a downer. Cocaine is an upper. So Caroline, sniffany, get a new doctor. He doesn't know what he's doing, boo-boo. Yeah, I mean, those drugs are going to have the complete opposite effects. Also, he switched her because he's like, laudanum is super addictive, but cocaine isn't. So I'm going to switch her to cocaine. Also, it kind of sounds like she has an anxiety disorder, and I'm not sure cocaine is the solution for that. Well, she's got the hysteria. The womb (laughs) is just wandering about her body. It's so funny, though, because back then I feel like they thought cocaine was sort of like a cure-all, which clearly isn't true. Just do some cocaine about it. It's fine. Yeah. Sora Sands goes about how you'd expect. At first, everyone thinks it's silly, but then serious stuff starts to happen. But it's all interrupted when Annie bursts in to tell Madeline Astor that Teddy is having a seizure. And she has to come quickly. And Teddy dies shortly thereafter. Poor Ted. Poor Teddy. Um, A crewman who was preparing Teddy's body to be let go to see gives Annie this brooch that Teddy had in his pocket that was Caroline's brooch. Um, And Annie just holds on to it. It's fine. So I'm going to hop, skip, and jump forward through a lot of this simply because this book is full of plot and I neither want to spoil it nor do I want this to be a two to three hour episode. No one wants to listen to me talk for two to three hours. Some highlights from the Titanic portion. Di and Les start running a con wherein Violet lets them into first-class rooms. They rummage for letters and such. Les pretends to be psychic with what he learns from these letters. And then they charge the first-class passengers for further predictions. That's clever. It is very clever. During this scam, they learn that the Astors keep thousands of dollars in cash in their storage. So they blackmail Mark into going to the first-class storage to steal it for them. Mark has a gambling addiction, and they caught him betting Caroline's jewelry in a card game. So that's how they blackmail him. Because Diane and Les are third-class passengers, but because they're, like, kind of boxing celebrities, the first-class passengers just really like them to be there. But in this, like, really gross, not seeing them as people, they're almost seen as, like, this exhibit of fitness. I don't know. You mean kind of like how people, how rich people treat POC sports players? Exactly. Actually. Oh, God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. No, pretty much exactly. Sips tea. Meanwhile, mm, the tea. Uh, The first class passengers are shaken by stolen items, the psychic predictions, and Teddy's death. Madeline Astor decides that she is being chased by a spirit sent by a curse set upon her by her husband's first wife. (laughs) She determines that Annie is that spirit. So she calls Annie to her cabin, her rooms, one night to escort her on a walk. They meander to the pool, and then Madeline tries to drown Annie. Hmm. Because that's how you get the demons out. You drown them out. Well, I mean, they did do stuff like that. Yep. Annie, during all of this, hears a voice that says, you're not done yet. This coincides relatively closely with Undine's health declining and Caroline seeing a growing attraction between Mark and Annie and thinking that Annie is slowly poisoning Undine to cause a strain between her and Mark. There's a lot going on in this book. This is all over the course of like 300 pages. I know. There's a lot, though. There is a lot. It's a very messy book, but it's all with kind of like that gothic vibe to it. Di feels guilty about the stolen money from the Astors and tries to return it. He gets caught, but Les jumps in and takes the fall. And that sets us up for something that happens in a minute. So Annie sneaks into the Fletcher's room. And while she's there, she finds a photo of Lillian breastfeeding Undine. And she believes that Caroline has stolen Undine and immediately goes to the telegraph operator's office to wire the London police. Like you do. Mm Mm-hmm. So Jack Phillips, one of the telegraph operators, real person, says she'll have to wait because he's very behind sending passenger messages and he's been told to prioritize them. Also, real thing that happened. She sees messages warning of ice and she decides that she's going to run them over to the bridge despite the fact that she's not allowed there. She gets tackled 
and the messages flutter out of her hand, which I thought was interesting. The messages of warning were sent to the Titanic, but they never made it to the bridge. And it's one of the like big mysteries about the sinking of the Titanic. And I like that the author was like, I'm just going to work this into my story. Annie gets locked up. And while she's there, she's fiddling with the brooch and it opens. It's like an arrow with a heart dangling from it. It opens and there's traces of white powder on the inside. And she suspects that Caroline is poisoning on Dean. Mm-hmm. And that's why Dean has been getting sick. And that the reason that Teddy died is because he was playing with the brooch. The poison came out and he ate it. Hmm. Okay. Then the Titanic hits the iceberg and it all goes to shit. I actually really enjoyed that the author doesn't linger too much on the sinking here. She gives us plot with the sinking in the background. So, tying things up real quick. Di lets out Annie because he's looking for Les, but it's actually Madeline Astor who lets Les out, but they all kind of reunite up on deck. And there is a lifeboat that needs a man to row, but they only have room for one. And so Les shoves Di into the boat and then demands that they lower it because he's been in love with Di, just as in love as Di has been with him this entire time. But then Les dies. (laughs) He drowns and dies. But you know I love a tragic love story, so... (laughs) Annie ends up at the same boat as Caroline. Caroline topples over the edge, and Annie leaps in after her. She keeps seeing Lillian's face flash over Caroline's, so she thinks that Lillian's ghost is taking over Caroline to try and drown the baby. Annie rescues the baby. Caroline dies. Now we jump to the Britannic, because it's basically like the final Titanic chapter. As we know from the blurb, Mark is wheeled in as one of the patients. When he comes to, he's unresponsive, but having seen Annie, requests another ward once he's able to talk. So what's a girl to do? Well, she straps him down while she, he's sleeping, and she just sits tight and waits for him to wake up. Okay. And he wakes up, and she's like, no, it's fine. I just want to help. And he's like, you tie me down. She's like, no, it's fine. I just have some good news for you. Your daughter's alive. Because she didn't even know Mark was alive. So clearly, like, Undine was sent off to an orphanage. Which, oh, early 1900s, that was a rough time to be in an orphanage. I don't think any time is a great time to be in an orphanage. But, you know. Wasn't that, like, Oliver Twisty times and stuff? Oliver Twist was, like, 1800s. But, yeah. In general, that's the general idea. He basically just tells her to stay the fuck away. But while strapping him down, she found Lillian's journal, which Mark has been carrying with him all this time. Turns out that he and Lillian were a couple. She worked for Caroline as a seamstress. And once Lillian found out she was pregnant, Caroline took them in. And all three of them lived together. Then she offered to adopt the baby because she found out that Lillian didn't want her. Oh, Lillian didn't want the baby. Yeah, Lillian didn't want Okay. Her. Lillian didn't want the baby. Caroline couldn't have kids. So she was like, I'll take your kid. But then Lillian suspected that, like, Caroline and Mark were a thing and were just going to, like, flee and leave her behind. It was messy. There's more tea there, but it would reveal a lot about the final parts of the plot. And actually, that's about where I'm going to leave off. Because the rest of the plot is the twist at the end. And I've actually left out almost every single hint at the twist because I don't want to ruin it because it's a good book and it's a recent book. But sadly, that's also where like the more traditional, not just atmospheric horror elements come in. So it probably sounds like I've been talking about something very boring for those listeners who are listening for the horror. I was actually going to ask, to be honest, it just sounded like a normal book to me, like There's no real horror in it. Most of it is the atmosphere. And then a lot of it is the twist. But I don't. Sure. Is it like a ghost story? I've actually left out nearly like every hint of the twist. Because I don't really want to ruin such a recent book. Especially one that I thought was this good. But sadly that's where a lot of the like really obvious horror elements come in. So that's kind of disappointing. For the most part, though, throughout the course of the book, a lot of the horror comes from the atmosphere, which is kind of hard to convey in this podcast. So it's like everything I talked about, but imagine it in like traditional gothic horror. Right. But there is a supernatural element to the book. 
Yes. It's just in the end. It's a twist. I can't tell you. I will drop in a fun hint here, though. It is directly related to the twist, so I can't tell you, like, the exact details. The Britannic sank because it struck an underwater mine, and the author kind of wraps that up into the plot and the twist in a way that I think is kind of cool Hmm. and interesting. So that brings me around to my rating. I'm actually going to give this one five out of five poison brooches. I'm telling myself that it's because the entire book is written in that classic gothic style with a lot of the trademark elements. There's the mystery, the occult, the general creepiness of the isolation of being on a ship. And I know that I read a lot of like over-the-top in-your-face horror for this podcast, but when it comes to my own personal tastes, that slow simmering gothic horror is like by far my favorite. And I love it. That said, I also totally acknowledge that I might be completely biased towards this because I love the Titanic so much. And so this combines my favorite horror style with the Titanic. And so I probably have blinders towards really any flaws it has. It sounds like a you kind of a book for sure. But yeah, so that's the deep. Hey, well, (laughs) if you were in the deep, would you have been one of the survivors? Probably not. The whole like, would I die in this one is like weirder than normal. And I feel like it's a really obvious response because likely I would die because I'm not super rich and a ton of the third class passengers died because society didn't and still doesn't view working class people as people, especially when compared to the wealthy. That said, I don't think I would have died for plot related reasons, which is really what that question's about. (laughs) Would you die in cat people? No, not enough people die. For one, only really the doctor dies. Well, I guess the main character kind of dies too, but no, the, the answer is no. Also, I don't kiss people that don't want to be kissed which is how Arena turns into a panther. But it's also when something stirs her passions and you <laughs> are really good looking. So... Mm-hmm. No. I, yeah. I, I mean, there's not a lot of death in this, but that's, that's a definite no. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second to Die Pod. You can also email us Questions, comments, concerns, daily affirmations or thoughts. And you can do that at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.